Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. At 87 years old, photographer Herb Snitzer continues to document social injustice and activism. His works are the subject of a major exhibition online now at the Bremen Museum. A jazz memoir, Photography by Herb Snitzer, features intimate photos of jazz icons Louis Armstrong, Duke Ellington, Nina Simone, and many others. Later this hour, I'll talk with Herb Snitzer and curator Tony Casadante. First, we'll hear about an upcoming event related to the show. The legendary trumpeter Louis Armstrong wore a Star of David pendant around his neck all his life, the man embodying the link between jazz and Jews since the dawn of the art form. African-American and Jewish musical cultures were intimately connected in the first half of the 20th century. Both the richness and complexity of that relationship will be explored in a free online event from the Bremen Museum Thursday evening. Emory Music Professor Reverend Dwight Andrews and Emory Film Professor Matthew Bernstein will discuss and show clips from The Jazz Singer the Al Jolson film that began the era of synchronized sound to movies. Both scholars join us now. Dwight, Matthew, welcome back to City Lights. Thank you. Good to be with you. Yes, thank you, Lois. Matthew, what's the story of the jazz singer? Oh, well, it's a big story. I mean, it's really, I think, what's most important for people to know is that it was the first film that combined musical performance into the feature film narrative format. You know, Warner Brothers had this new sound technology, Vitaphone, and they were using it to film vaudeville performers, opera singers, comedians, and they released a bunch of shorts. They originally created Vitaphone to provide prologues that were filmed instead of 
theaters having to pay for an orchestra and live acts. You just record and send them out. But in the process of doing that, they came up with the idea of making feature films with the Vitaphone process. And the previous feature films they'd made had been feature length, which we say 60 minutes or more, but they had synchronized music. The Jazz Singer was the first feature film that not only had synchronized music, but also had live performance that was recorded featuring Al Jolson in the title role of Jakey Rabinovitz, the cantor's son who wants to sing jazz. And between the electricity of hearing Jolson sing and dance, and also some scenes where he ad-libs dialogue, people went crazy over this film. So Al Jolson's character of Jakey Rabinowitz defies the traditions of his devout Jewish family to become a jazz singer. What do Jolson's performances in blackface mean within the context of Jakey's story of Jewish assimilation? They have a lot of different meanings. The fact that blackface was a performing tradition that goes back to the 1830s was one piece. It was part of blackface minstrelsy. It was extremely popular for a variety of reasons, a variety of appeals. It was both appropriating and also making fun of black characters, caricatures, stereotypes. But their appeal was multiple in a number of ways. For example, audiences could identify with some of these stereotypes of like this quote unquote Sambo figure who doesn't want to do work and best known to us through the screen actor Stephen Fetchett, whose real name was Lincoln Theodore Monroe Andrew Perry. So you have this tradition of blackface performance that continues into vaudeville. When Jakey Rabinowitz is performing his numbers in blackface and he performs two, it's as if he's taking this tradition to talk about, to express Jewish sorrow and Jewish yearning. So it's both an expression of solidarity with black Americans, but at the same time, it's using it for its own ends. And it's fusing this notion of jazz music that comes from the soul and comes from God, but also with Jewish yearning, some of the characters say, you sing as if you have a tear in your voice. It's very distinctive. And so Jakey talks about how it's his heritage that is being expressed in his desire to sing jazz. It also fits in with the film's basic assimilation plot of Jakey being the son of five generations of cantors Orthodox Jewish, but wanting to sing popular music. Dwight, how does the jazz singer use jazz music? Is it authentic? Well, as you probably know by now, Lois, I, I resist terms like authentic because I don't know <laughs> I don't know if anything is authentic in the in the sense that we oftentimes use it. But just as Matthew has said, you know, what's really complex and exciting to unpack is the ways in which many different issues converge. As Matthew has noted, minstrelsy was a tradition that not only appropriated, if that's the right word, and made fun of Blacks, but it also really furthered a complete myth about slave culture, slave reality. Minstrelsy was in one of the powerful ways to 
mythologize how just how brutal slavery was. And minstrelsy made light of it. It made the happy darky the story, not the person who was in forced labor. And so part of what minstrelsy does, at least from my interpretation, is it creates a complete myth about slavery. And so it, it, it becomes not only a popular entertainment, but it furthers a popular point of view, which kept people from dealing with the brutalities of slavery. So how ironic that it continues well into the 20th century onto the vaudeville stage and onto Broadway, and not only with white actors and blackface, but black actors participated in this tradition to show how complex it is. So even with the term jazz singer, jazz was really in its beginnings in the 19-teens and 20s. So jazz meant a lot of things at once, Tin Pan Alley, those songs of show business, but as well as the hot jazz entertainment of Louis Armstrong and Duke Ellington, jazz was a term that was bantered about, but it really was a kind of code word for kind of Black singing, Black performing. So to have this richly complex story of the jazz singer is what I'm so excited and looking forward to, to unpacking with Matthew, my uh, cohort in this, because I, I think there are many points of convergence. Well, what are some of those positive convergences? Well, I hope that Matthew can help me with this because, you know, part of the issue of early film was the ways in which many were concerned that film would be yet another way to further the kinds of myth-making that minstrelsy did, but on a whole new level. So when you look at early films like Birth of a Nation and the kinds of myths that it created and really furthered the cause of many very racist and violent movements against Blacks, people began to take what they saw on the screen as truth. And so the very concerns that the Harlem Renaissance writers and thinkers worried about in terms of how film might be a new type of propaganda really was what people were concerned about, because not only was it popular, but it also created an understanding of people, of other communities, in which people only knew them through the screen. And so it raises kind of questions, not only about the 1920s, but about the 21st century. How films help to shape our understandings of one another is one of the topics that I hope we can converge and talk about. I'm not sure what the positives are. It's hard for me to think positive versus negative. I kind of want to live in the middle and try to kind of dig into the weeds of all of this. So Dwight's raising really important issues. So movies don't obviously create blackface tradition, but they amplify them, they circulate them. And these caricatures, these stereotypes, as I was saying earlier, are tied up with denying the brutality of the slave system, the plantation system in the South. And this begins very early on. I mean, one of the first topics within the first decade of film are adaptations of Uncle Tom's Cabin. And you have characters appearing in blackface there. It was a very popular stage show in addition to being a novel. And then Birth of a Nation takes it way beyond. I mean, E.W. Griffith in that film casts African-Americans as extras, but the most villainous, emotionally distraught characters in the film are played by whites in blackface. So it certainly cements this. So the jazz singer, basically, it only visually acknowledges the roots of jazz in African-American music. Only when Al Jolson puts on Burnt Cork 
Blackface, which he actually does in the scene of the film, and then goes out and in the course of the film sings two songs in Blackface, both of them about his mother. And the mother is the mediating figure in the film between the stern father and Jack's desire to sing popular music. So, yes, there's a whole nexus of meanings, overlapping desires, expression within Black culture, Black music, and uh, Jewish music that's being explored in the film. And that's part of what makes it very rich. Emory film professor Dr. Matthew Bernstein and Emory music professor Dr. Dwight Andrews. Tomorrow evening... They're part of the Bremen Museum's virtual discussion of the film The Jazz Singer, Blacks, Jews, and Jazz. We'll return to more of our conversation after a short break. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Let's return to more of my conversation with Emory University professors Dwight Andrews and Matthew Bernstein. They will take part in an online event with the Bremen Museum tomorrow evening, a discussion of the movie The Jazz Singer. Dwight, I've so appreciated our conversations earlier on the musical affinity and history of Jewish Americans, African Americans. And there was an event you did with Joe Alterman of Naramana. I believe he's going to take part in this discussion with you as well. You had an event at your congregation, wasn't it, at First Church, where you discussed some of the history? 
Yes, with Ben Sidren and Joe Alterman and myself, we had a wonderful conversation about not only the the sonic aspects of the relationships between African-American and Jewish music, but Ben Sidren, the wonderful composer and musician and columnist, talked about the business of music. And that's an important part of that Black Jewish nexus. You know, when you think about Tin Pan Alley and the ways in which songs were sold and hawked and put in musicals and taken out of musicals and the relationships with some of our early songwriters and people that we know very well, like people like George Gershwin and others and their relationships with W.C. Handy, we can see this wonderful synergy between the early popular American song as we know it. And it is very much, I think, a wonderful weave of ethnic identities, partially because of the intersection of these communities, Black and Jewish and others, but also, I think, because there are some inherent musical practices that are just common to both cultures that go back perhaps since the beginning of time. Those being call and response? Call and response, but also uh, certain kinds of scales and modes that we associate with the so-called sorrow songs, uh, the pentatonic scales that we associate with African-American folk music. Perhaps one of the most well-known pentatonic tunes would be uh, I've Got Rhythm by George Gershwin. And so is this African-American appropriation or is this a part of his culture that he's simply representing? This is the opportunity I think we have to to see and hear each other in one another's musics. Yes. And how do we make sense, better understand, but not minimize the damage of a practice like blackface? Well, I separate, frankly, the musical practice from uh, the media of presentation. So, for example, blackface is a part of our racial and racist cultural heritage, but I separate that as quite distinctive from the musical practices that we hear in a Porgy and Bess or in a Louis Armstrong great solo song because they have overlaps that are quite distinct from the means of presentation. They are in the practice When we listen to a great cantor or when we listen to a great singer in the African-American religious tradition or jazz singing tradition, it's the soul in it that we try to fully embrace and understand that sometimes defies the medium in which we receive it. I think going back to what you said about some of the great composers of the early 20th century who embraced blues and jazz. Harold Arlen comes to mind. I know that he would hang out at the Apollo as much as he could and was quite flattered that people who had never met him thought he was black. (laughs) Mm -hmm. How do we maintain pride in the connection while also acknowledging some of the messiness that ensued? Well, I mean, I think to everything that Dwight has said, I I will add by having conversations like these, we have to contextualize these practices that are racist, understand them, also understand the multiplicity of meanings that they have for different audiences, at the same time, never forgetting their fundamentally demeaning nature. 
And I think the other thing is to be on the lookout for similar practices that are not as overt in our popular culture today. What would those be, Matthew? Well, my examples, the most recent examples are not in the last decade or so, although I'm sure people could come up with them. It can be in the definition of roles of Black characters, say, within television or popular film. Ah. And literal Blackface itself has not made that much of an appearance lately, but when it does, it's really troubling. So I'm thinking of a 1986 film called Soul Man, about a white character who pretends he's Black and darkens his face. So I believe it's so he can get into Harvard Law School. And then on the other hand, you have something like Spike Lee's Bamboozled in 2000, which in some way is satirizing the practice of Blackface because it concerns a Black TV executive who's not getting projects done and sort of sarcastically proposes a Blackface minstrelsy weekly show. And the white executives at the network say, yeah, let's do it. And it becomes a hit. It's almost kind of like a a Black version of the producers in a way. Spike Lee obviously has a different take on this than a movie like Soul Man. But even a film as recent as Tropic Thunder, Tropic Thunder from 2008 had Robert Downey Jr. playing an Australian method actor who has been cast as a Black character in a combat film, and he darkens his skin. So you have, you know, different contexts there for thinking about and looking at and recognizing the complex legacies. And I think I think our country and our culture today, or certainly certain parts of it, are on the lookout. I mean, we look at the political fallout of discovering, say, the governor of Virginia dressed in blackface for a party decades ago and the appropriate outrage that arises from that. But I think these kinds of conversations, understanding the tradition, understanding what the meanings are, are really crucial for us to be able to take both the positive elements or the enduring elements that Dwight was talking about and distinguish them from their ideological purpose in this country. And education. Early on, your dear wife's introduction of children's picture books and stories that honor our differences rather than perpetuate stereotypes. Yeah, no, I I completely agree. I mean, one of the problems with this, the popularity of blackface minstrelsy in all its forms is that it's introduced into a vacuum early in the 20th century where there are no prevailing other kinds of representation or images that can fill it. And so they occupy this enormous space. And when, just going back to Dwight referencing the birth of a nation, the power of birth of a nation was its cinematic artistry, which is wedded to this utterly racist ideology and very effectively. But part of the rhetoric of birth of a nation with D.W. Griffith was this film is authentic. The film is populated with scenes and intertitles that say this scene is a replica of the surrender at Appomattox. This scene is a rendering of an actual photograph or drawing of a South Carolina legislature after the Civil War during Reconstruction. So that, you know, you asked earlier about authenticity. The question is, what is conveyed as a constructed sense of realism and authenticity? And it's in the absence of alternatives to Black-based minstrelsy that you see the thriving of these stereotypes. That's what they say, but to me, He's an angel of a joy.
Wait a minute. Wait a minute. You ain't heard nothing yet. Wait a minute, I tell you. You ain't heard nothing. You want to hear Toot Toot Tootsie? All right. Hold on. Hold on. Lou, listen. Play Toot Toot Tootsie. Three choruses, you understand? And the third chorus, I whistle. Now give it to him hard and heavy. Go right ahead. Nothing but blue skies from now on. Making people think about this as, as a choice and thinking about alternative forms of representation is also really, really important. And thinking critically about why these stereotypes persisted, the many manifold functions they serve in a white a society that believes in white supremacy. In 1998, the jazz singer was named one of the best American films of all time by the American Film Institute. That was based on a vote. Do you think this film can still be considered one of the greats in 2021? Well, I, you know, I, I'm sorry. I, I have a slightly different view of the American <laughs> Film Institute's rankings and listings. It's a great entity. I'm glad we have it. It seems to me a lot of the titles named to the list the list is serves as a marketing tool mm-hmm. for studios to get people interested in their library, their backlog. However, the, the jazz singer, more importantly to me, is named to the National Film Registry by the National Film Preservation Board, on which I have the honor to serve up until this year. And there it's talking about films of important aesthetic or cultural significance. So I would not in any way say The Jazz Singer is the great, one of the greatest films made in America, certainly not on aesthetic terms. It's very melodramatic. It's and much more melodramatic than its source material in Samson Rayfieldson's short story that itself was inspired by Al Jolson's biography and the play that Rayfieldson made from it. It's not great filmmaking. It's fascinating culturally because the film was a hit and it cannot just be because of the excitement of sound. For a Hollywood studio like Warner Brothers, which is created by Jewish immigrants to decide that they're gonna make this film about Jewish life and the struggle of assimilation is really, really significant. So I think the film has that cultural importance and we need to think about it and watch it, but it's, you know, it's no Casablanca. So, so I, I mean, I hate to spoil it for <laughs> folks listening who want to watch it. I just, it's basically a silent film with these moments of synchronized score, but with these moments of live performance. Yes, but we need to not just simply consume, but also critique of the very materials that we are drawn to. And then that gives us an opportunity to ask the question, why is it that we are drawn to a particular film or a particular story? And and Matthew has kind of pointed to it. And what I think I'm most interested in us doing, especially in this difficult time of racial reckoning, is to think about what it is we consume and what we mean by things being great, and to understand the role of commerce in our valuation and validation of so-called creative expression. Distinguishing what's authentic or what's real is really becoming an increasingly difficult challenge. And what these early films show us is just how powerful film can be in creating a reality that may have no basis in reality at all. Emory professors Dr. Dwight Andrews and Dr. Matthew Bernstein. They'll take part in the Bremen Museum's online discussion, The Jazz Singer, 
Blacks, Jews, and Jazz, tomorrow evening at 7 o'clock. The event is free and open to the public. More information will be on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Photographer Herb Snitzer has said jazz is a statement about a people's desire and thirst for freedom. And with freedom, the sweetness of individuality and sense of self-worth. We must salute jazz musicians, not only as jazz artists, which they were, but as American artists. His work is the subject of a major exhibition at the Bremen Museum, a jazz memoir, photography by Herb Snitzer. He joins us now, along with curator Tony Casadante. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you very much. Thank you, Lois. Glad to be here. Herb, you have photographed icons, Louis Armstrong, Nina Simone, Miles Davis, Dizzy Gillespie, Duke Ellington, John Coltrane, and Count Basie, among others. When did your interest in photographing jazz musicians begin? Oh, a long time ago. 1958, when I was uh, commissioned by Metronome magazine to do a study, a visual study of Lester Young, the great tenor saxophonist of the Count Basie Orchestra at that time. And I was just so captivated by what I was feeling as much as what I was seeing. It was, it was uh, quite a jolt to my emotional system. I never anticipated that I would get so involved with the music, but I have and have still am after all these many years. I'm curious about how you developed relationships with these artists. Would you go to particular clubs, their hangout spots? Uh, introduce yourself? Were, were you invited to their parties? Well, I did become part of the jazz scene in New York at that time, and uh, it, it just uh, was almost accidental. All of those wonderful photographs I made of uh, Louis Armstrong, I made while we were on tour, and I was on his bus, and we were just hanging out. And, and I really mean hanging out. I mean, jazz musicians are a breed apart. I just love them. <laughs> Now, your photography career spans more than 50 years. Tony, why does the exhibition focus on the years between 1957 and 1964? During that period, Herb was a young man, grew up in Philadelphia. When he finished art school, he heads to New York to, you know, make his mark on the world. And as he said, the job for Metronome, he had been freelancing for a while, was a year after he was in New York. And then that opened up 
the world of jazz for him and a permanent position on Metronome Magazine, which again got him into the community. The focus of the exhibition for that period was it was a very rich time, a great deal of social change, and Herb was kind of right there on the pulse of it. And that is really kind of a core of his work. Herb is still a working photographer. I'm sure gets a little tougher now with his age and COVID, but he is actively documenting his entire life. But that particular period was a, was a particularly strong period in Herb's career, and it's kind of the focus of the exhibition. And then we deal with a later period when he came back to jazz and reacquainted with a lot of these same artists in the 70s and 80s and into the 90s. And then we also have other aspects of the exhibition that deal with his social work and uh, social issues that he's documented throughout the arc of his career. The main focus is that early period, but the exhibition is rather expansive and we have a, a, a lot of different subjects that are covered. Herb, what were you hoping to reveal about African-American jazz artists that mainstream, predominantly white newspapers and magazines were not showcasing during that era? They couldn't ignore Louis Armstrong or Duke Ellington, Dizzy Gillespie, the, these, Miles Davis, certainly. These were all crossover artists and were accepted by the white world. I mean, that's pretty obvious today in looking back as to how these men and women integrated themselves within the bigger community. One of my favorite is Nina Simone. I mean, I was called by the Colpix Records to do a photo session with Nina uh, in anticipation of their, their publishing her new uh, record. So I got to meet her and we became fast friends. We were pretty much the same age, had the same political viewpoints about things and just stayed in touch with each other all those years. I know a lot of people think she was very difficult, but I loved her and that was important for me. And she was an amazing artist. She was a great artist, just wonderful. Can you tell us about your parents' refugee story? Well, that, that they were uh, immigrants uh, coming to this country uh, when they were very young. My father was six, and my mother not much older, and they settled in Philadelphia and created their own groups and uh, protected them themselves in that way. Were they the ones who introduced you to jazz? No, they had nothing to do with the jazz world. They, they were hardworking first generation, or I'm first generation American, but my parents, uh, they just had to make a living. They had to survive. And uh, I was pretty much stifled by that kind of world. And I knew that sooner or later I was going to break out and go to New York, which is where I always wanted to be anyway. What does this exhibition reveal about the connection between 
Jews, jazz, and the African-American community? Yeah, that's an interesting question. Uh, the fact that there were many uh, Jewish photographers, which was interesting, photographing jazz. Most of them are gone now. I think I'm one of the very few that has outlived everybody for better or worse. So the connection is an obvious connection. The, the struggle of uh, Jews in America, the struggle of jazz musicians to, to live without the fear of the cops, which uh, I always felt was a, a tragic moment in the history of uh, black relationships and Jewish relationships. Certainly with the civil rights movement, which I was involved with, those two groups came together. They just realized that they were ready to join each other, and uh, they did. During that time, a uh, number of rabbis, a uh, number of influential Jewish showbiz people, it, it, was, it was really natural for them to come together. Renowned photographer Herb Snitzer and exhibit curator Tony Casadante. The virtual exhibition, A Jazz Memoir, is on view now at the Bremen Museum. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate. And thanks.